You're listening to the Mindful Weight Loss Podcast, episode number 12. It's time to look at weight loss in a whole new way. Instead of focusing on calories in, calories out, you'll learn how to use your brain to transform your body and heal your relationship with food. If you're ready to lose your weight for the last time, you're in the right place. Because it's more than what you eat. It's who you are when you're eating. This is the Mindful Weight Loss Podcast. Here's your host, life and weight loss coach, Dr. Michelle Tupman. I was recently scrolling through some weight loss Facebook groups, and it seems like every other post is about intermittent fasting these days. It's really being touted as the magic bullet for weight loss in many of these groups, and not just for weight loss, but for health in general. And so I am going to give you everything you need to know about intermittent fasting the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'll do this over a series of three episodes. In this episode, I'll tell you all about the science behind intermittent fasting, including all the potential benefits, and then also some of the drawbacks and cautions as well, particularly as it relates to women. And then in the second episode, which will come out next week, I'll talk about the different ways you can do intermittent fasting and how to do it safely if it is something that you choose to experiment with. And then in the third episode, coming out the following week, we'll focus on hunger, including how to tune into your body to recognize your hunger, and then also to use it as a barometer for when and how much to eat. So let's get started today with the science behind intermittent fasting. You know, I find it interesting that fasting is as polarizing as it is sometimes, because fasting is actually a normal part of human life when you think about it. We all fast when we sleep at night, right? It's why we call breakfast breakfast, because we're breaking our fast. And if you think back to our caveman days, those hunter-gatherer times in our history, we would sometimes go for days without eating. And feast or famine was really just a way of life for us back then. And because of that, we have evolved biological mechanisms to help us adapt to times of both feast and famine. And of course, in modern times, fasting is also an important part of many of the world's major religions. Like the obvious example that comes to mind here are Muslims who fast during the holy month of Ramadan. And in fact, a lot of the studies done on intermittent fasting have actually been done with these populations. But many other religions have rituals involving fasting as well. Like, for example, Jewish people fast on Yom Kippur and Eastern Orthodox Christians also have certain days when they fast. And there's many other examples as well. And if you think back in history, fasting has also been used as a way to make a political statement. I'm thinking of like the hunger strikes in Ireland here. I can think those took place in the 1980s, and I believe they were done to advocate for prisoners' rights. And Gandhi is also another great example. He fasted frequently as a form of social protest. And so if you think of all the places in the world today and through the course of history, when entire populations actually faced famine and food scarcity. Like I'm thinking about Ethiopia in the 70s and 80s, for example. And although this obviously isn't intentional fasting, it's just one more example of how humans and human bodies actually experience fasting. It's not really an uncommon thing. And if you even look beyond humans to the animal world, um, fasting is a very natural part of that as well. Like think of all the animals who hibernate for the winter, right? They overfeed in one season, 
and then they sleep through the next season, surviving only on the fat stores that they accumulated during their feeding season. So the point here is that fasting is far from a new thing in our history. It's been used for spiritual, religious, and political reasons for centuries. And so it's no real surprise to me that it's been studied and that we're now really looking at its potential health benefits and considering the use of fasting as a practice as part of a healthy lifestyle. In today's society, where 60% of the North American diet consists of highly processed foods, and many people suffer ill health as the result of both excess calorie consumption and also excess consumption of these processed foods, it's really not surprising that fasting has emerged as a way to manage our modern excesses. And in fact, intermittent fasting has been proposed to have a very long list of potential benefits, including weight loss and fat loss, improved appetite control, improved blood pressure, improved cholesterol and cardiovascular function, also less symptoms in people with autoimmune diseases. And it's been said to both decrease the risk of cancer and then also enhances cancer treatment. It's been said to decrease general inflammation in the body. And it's also been purported to improve brain health and neuroplasticity. And of course, it's also been said to improve our longevity as well. So those are a lot of benefits. And when you hear that list, the urge to experiment with the intermittent fasting becomes quite strong. But I really want to take a look at a couple of things. Like, first of all, what's actually happening in your body when you fast? And what's the mechanism behind all of these purported benefits of fasting? And then also, what exactly does the science actually say when it comes to these benefits? Well, let's get on with it. So what happens in your body when you fast? Well, for the first six hours or so after you eat, your body is really just working hard to digest that food. And it's trying to absorb all the nutrients and all the energy from the food you ate and then assimilate the nutrients and energy into the cells of your body. And during this time, your body also releases certain hormones that send the message to your brain that your digestive system is busy and to not feed it anymore. And so you experience these signals as feeling full or satiated. And then by about 8 to 12 hours after your meal, all of the nutrients have been assimilated by that time. And then it's during this time period that you begin to enter the fasted state. And so the fasted state is really just defined as by when your body shifts from using energy from the food you just ate for fuel to using stored energy for fuel instead. It's really when your body starts dining in, so to speak. And your body actually stores energy in a couple of different ways. The first way is in the form of glycogen. And glycogen is the storage form of glucose, which is our primary source of energy from food. Glycogen is stored primarily in your muscles and in your liver. And when you enter the fasted state, your body will shift to using your liver glycogen stores for energy instead of the glucose from the food. And your liver will store about a day's worth of energy in the form of glycogen, but maybe even less if you have a particularly active lifestyle. And so the second way you store energy in your body is obviously in your fat stores, which is called your adipose tissue. Now, your adipose tissue can release fat in the form of fatty acids, and your liver can then actually convert these fatty acids back into glucose for your body to use as energy. 
And your body can also turn those fatty acids into ketone bodies, which your brain is also able to use as energy in addition to glucose. So your body will use these alternative ways to produce energy during your fast, up to about 72 hours or so. After that, your body is depending almost exclusively on fatty acids for fuel. And in fact, your body can survive for quite some time in this fasted state. When I looked into this, the longest fast recorded, in the medical literature anyway, is 382 days. And this was actually in a man who started off at 456 pounds and then finished, I think, at about 180 pounds. And he did this, of course, under the supervision of a doctor, and he did take vitamins and other supplements during this time. But aside from this very dramatic exception, most studies looking at more prolonged fasting periods, they study people fasting for up to about three weeks or 21 days. And interestingly, most people in these studies said that their hunger actually went away. And most of them also said that whatever health concerns they had prior to the fasting study actually improved over the course of the study. Now, of course, I am never going to recommend you fast for three weeks, <laughs> but it's interesting to look at the literature and see what the human body can actually do. All right. Now, in addition to the changes in how your body gets its fuel when you fast, there's lots of other changes that happen in the body when you fast as well. And it's these changes that are really responsible for many of the benefits and also some of the harms that are associated with intermittent fasting. So the first thing that happens when you fast is that everything in the body just sort of slows down, likely so that energy can be conserved for the more essential functions that your body needs to do to keep you alive. So you'll see a lower body temperature. Like, you know, for example, oftentimes when people fast, they'll report coldness, particularly in their hands and feet. And you'll also see lower blood pressure and also a slower heart rate. And your basal metabolic rate, which you can really sort of think of that as your body's idling speed, it also slows right down, as does your digestion. Now, unfortunately, it also means that your body slows down its protein synthesis and its ability to repair itself as well. And it also really decreases the production of certain hormones, particularly the sex hormones that are essential for women's reproductive health. And we'll talk more about that little piece of the puzzle um, just a little bit later in this episode. Now, of course, if you Google the benefits of intermittent fasting, what's going to come up first in your search is the benefits in terms of glucose and insulin levels. So, of course, when you're not eating, when you're fasting, you have decreased levels of glucose and insulin in your bloodstream. And it also happens to improve your insulin sensitivity, meaning that your insulin functions better in the body as well. Now, because of this, intermittent fasting may be beneficial in people with type 2 diabetes. However, the studies done on this are actually quite inconsistent, with some showing very dramatic improvement, some showing really only minimal improvement, and even a lot of studies showing no improvement at all. So although there may be promise here, there still seems to be lots of work that needs to be done for us to understand exactly how and when fasting can be used in people with diabetics. Now, studies have also shown that fasting improves both the health and the diversity of your microbiome. Now, we're really only just starting to understand all the roles the microbiome plays in health. But what we do know is that it's definitely important to your gut health in general. 
but it also seems to play a role in keeping your immune system functioning well. And we also know that it plays a role in body weight as well. So this is another potential benefit of fasting. Now, fasting also seems to slow down cellular aging. So there's lots of things in our modern environment that actually speed up cellular aging. A lot of environmental toxins and free radicals that are around us, the chronic stress of modern day living, a lot of the drugs that we use, both recreationally and what we use for medical purposes, and poor diets high in super processed foods can speed up cellular aging, as can a lack of sleep. And so fasting may be one tool to help counteract all of these additional stressors on the cells in our body. Now, fasting can also help us clean up the old and damaged cells in our body. And this may be partly why intermittent fasting can play a role in both cancer prevention and treatment. But however, once again, the studies out there are very conflicting with this. And in fact, most of the studies done in this area are actually on animals, not humans. So it's hard to know if we can even extrapolate the data to humans. But even among the animal studies that have been done, some studies are actually showing an increased risk of cancer with fasting. So again, there's just no real clear answers here when you look at the science that's been done. Now, another thing that you often hear is brain health. So brain health is one of the most commonly cited benefits of intermittent fasting. Although, again, there's actually very little conclusive research done on this in humans. But it has been suggested that fasting can slow down the rate of cognitive decline. And the theory here is that improved glucose and insulin control, as well as decreasing inflammation in general in the body and in the brain, are what contribute to this. And it may also be due to the ketone bodies that are produced during fasting, since the brain loves to use ketones for energy. From the animal studies that we've done, though, it seems that fasting may be beneficial in preventing cognitive decline, but once it's already present, fasting can actually make things worse. But again, the studies are just so inconsistent here. What we do know for sure is that some people say they experience better mental clarity when they fast. But then again, others also say they get a brain fog and feel super irritable and anxious when they fast. So once again, it's clear that there's just no one-size-fits-all approach for everyone here when it comes to fasting. What's also clear is that the proposed benefits of fasting may actually result from losing body fat or reducing caloric intake rather than the fasting itself. Because what we know for sure is that having significantly excess body fat, not just a little bit of excess body fat, but significantly excess body fat, and consistently eating more calories than what your body needs does carry a higher risk of many cancers. And the human research also quite clearly shows that losing weight or body fat lowers cancer risk. And intermittent fasting can help you lose weight or body fat. And it can do this through a couple of different mechanisms. So it may actually make it easier for people to reduce their overall calorie consumption. Now, of course, intermittent fasting alone is never going to be enough for permanent weight loss. Like, for example, studies of Muslims during Ramadan show that although many people will lose weight during Ramadan, they will gain it all back and oftentimes even more so during the rest of the year. 
but it still can be one tool in your weight loss toolbox for sure. But the thing is, if you're eating a pile of crap in between your fasts, you're not going to get healthier, right? And I unfortunately see people say this all the time in weight loss Facebook groups. They say that, you know, they'll only eat from noon to 8 p.m., for example, but then they'll eat whatever the heck they want during that period. And to enjoy the the extra health benefits or the potential health benefits of intermittent fasting, it just isn't going to work that way, right? You have to be giving your body the nutrients that it needs and not just giving it more processed crap during the times that you're eating. And remember also what I love to say all of the time, and that's if the methods aren't sustainable, then the results aren't sustainable either, right? So unless you plan to fast forever, it simply cannot be the only thing that you do to lose weight. Okay. One of the benefits of using fasting for weight loss is that your body doesn't adapt to consistently lower energy. Oftentimes with more traditional dieting, you know, when we just focus on calorie restriction, for example, your body responds to that chronic calorie deficit by making you feel constantly hungry and irritable, right? And having a lot less energy, even having a weakened immune system and you start to lose muscle rather than fat under those conditions. And at least in theory, by using intermittent fasting and varying your caloric intake from day to day, all of these negative effects of dieting can potentially be avoided. But once again, the studies are super inconsistent with some people losing weight and feeling great with fasting, and then other people just feeling exhausted and worn out and not really losing any weight at all. So again, no one-size-fits-all approach here. Having said that, though, one of the most important benefits of fasting, in my mind anyway, is that it can help improve appetite awareness and allow us to explore hunger a little bit more. So we're going to look at this much more in the next two episodes. But for now, know that there's even some evidence out there to suggest that when people fast, they're more likely to make healthier food choices when they eat. And this might be explained by improvements in the hormone systems that happen with fasting. Because as I mentioned earlier, chronic calorie restriction can have negative effects, right? It affects nearly all of your hormone systems, including the ones that control energy balance and appetite and digestion and even mood. And it also really affects the natural painkiller pathways in the brain. So what ends up happening is that the more strictly you diet, the worse you feel and the less your brain is actually able to soothe you and calm you down. And then you end up in a binge or whatever to get the dopamine hit that you need to feel better. But studies show that when fasts are mild and intermittent, that's the key, mild and intermittent, then these hormone systems aren't affected as much and people just tend to feel better overall. Now, here's something important to consider when it comes to fasting, and that's that the body will actually interpret fasting as a source of stress. And we do see elevations in stress hormones, including cortisol, during fasting. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, although it can be. It really just all comes down to a concept called homeostasis. So the human body is always in this dance of dynamic balance. So as one thing changes in your body, something else will change to compensate and bring things back into balance. So as a simple example, if the room is too warm, then you'll sweat. And if the room is too cold, then you'll shiver. 
And this is just your body's way of maintaining a normal body temperature. And it's actually through this dance that we grow stronger. And so sometimes stress is good. Like, for example, think about a workout. A workout places a lot of stress on your body. But as you recover from your workout, your muscles actually become stronger. So in this case, the stress is good. But this is really one good reason why there's no simple one-size-fits-all approach to fasting. Because if you have a ton of stressors in your life and you feel like you're on the brink of burnout, then the added stress of fasting may cause way more harm than good in your body. But if you're feeling great in life and your chronic stress levels are nice and manageable for you, then fasting might be an excellent way to strengthen your metabolism and improve your longevity. So you can think of fasting as sort of like a metabolic workout in this way, right? You stress your body with a little bit of a fast and then it recovers and it becomes a bit better in the process. Now, of course, the studies are once again inconsistent when it comes to all of these things. But what is clear is that it's likely that intermittent fasting can improve your health. But the extent to which it can do so is probably fairly limited. And what also seems to be clear from the science is that it seems to have more of an effect if you already have poor metabolic health or if you have certain chronic diseases. If you are metabolically healthy and generally healthy, then fasting seems to have much less of an effect on your health. And what's also interesting to me, especially because of the way I choose to approach the weight loss journey, how you're thinking about intermittent fasting can actually affect the physiological effects of fasting. And I find this totally fascinating, right? Because we talk about the importance of your thinking all of the time on this podcast. And so if you think that fasting for a day, you know, for example, is going to be terrifying or harmful or scary, then it's likely going to cause you a great deal more stress than if you're approaching it with curiosity or the belief that it's going to be a healthy thing for you and your body. And I know that a lot of women who struggle with weight also struggle with hunger. And so for many of us, hunger feels like an emergency. So if your primitive brain is going to send you the message that your life is in danger when you're hungry, then you're going to get a pretty big stress response when you fast. And so we'll talk more about this piece of the puzzle in the hunger episode coming up in a few weeks. But the take-home message here for today is that what counts as stress is going to be different from one person to another person based on a whole host of factors. And I also just want to talk specifically about considerations for women who want to experiment with intermittent fasting. Because there's lots of evidence to suggest that there are some important differences in how male and female bodies respond to fasting. So we know that women's bodies like to defend their body fat. And what this really means, generally speaking anyway, is that it's harder for women to lose weight than men and that women's hunger hormones will compensate more strongly when calories are restricted compared to what happens in men's bodies. And so women will also therefore experience more cravings and more urges and have the desire to overeat more than men. Now, there are very few studies that investigate the differences in how male and female bodies respond to fasting. It's actually a little bit disturbing to me that 
you know, first of all, most of the studies done on intermittent fasting seem to be done on animals. And the ones that are done on humans are almost exclusively done on men. Now, not all of them, but most of them seem to be done in men. And many of them also seem to be done in, you know, very regimented conditions that really don't reflect day-to-day life for most of us. But anyways, that's a whole other podcast episode. There is, however, at least one study out there that does show that intermittent fasting actually harms glucose control in women, but it improves it in men, right? And then there's a second study I read that shows that fasting will trigger a bigger stress response in women than in men as well. And so what is so problematic here is that if most of the studies are done on men and we are interpreting those studies to include effects for women as well, we may be interpreting this very wrong because men and women's bodies are very different and we can't interpret how men react and apply that to how women might react as well. So there are a couple of these studies in the literature that suggest perhaps fasting may not be as healthy for women. But again, there's been, you know, just a few studies done on this and, you know, really the answers are unclear. But here is what the big issue is when it comes to women in fasting. The hormones that are involved in ovulation are extraordinarily sensitive to changes in energy intake. In fact, in some women, even missing a single meal can really throw off these hormone systems. And again, this is an evolutionary thing, right? So for our ancestors who didn't have fast food on every corner, if there wasn't a consistent food supply, then it didn't make a lot of sense for the body to allow a pregnancy, right? So now in modern times, when you lose weight, your body might assume food scarcity and will try to prevent pregnancy. And it isn't just weight loss that does this. It's anything that results in a negative energy balance, meaning anything where you are burning more energy than what you're consuming. So not just dieting, but things like having a poor diet that's high in processed foods so that your body isn't getting the nutrients that it needs or, you know, exercising too much or even just having very high levels of chronic stress and not having enough rest and recovery time. All of these things can interfere with your reproductive system. And if you look at it this way, your period is really like the canary in the coal mine for metabolic health, right? It's a great indicator. So if your periods are changing, if you're not getting them, if they're not coming on time, if they're shorter than usual, if they're longer than usual, if they're more crampy than usual, sometimes that is a sign that something is going on with your metabolism. And really what this all comes down to is the role of estrogen and the role it plays in your metabolism. So you actually have estrogen receptors all over your body, not just in your uterus and your ovaries, right? You have them in your brain, in your digestive system, in your bones, and in other places. And so when you change your estrogen balance, it affects literally everything, your cognition, your mood, your digestion, your recovery, your bone formation, your appetite. And in your brain, estrogens will actually modify your hunger hormones. So when your estrogen drops, you actually end up feeling super hungry and you end up eating way more than you normally would. And guess what? Fasting causes your estrogen to drop. And just interestingly, estrogen is also involved in fat storage. And so when you decrease estrogen, you store more fat. 
And this is one of the reasons why it can be more challenging to lose weight after menopause. Now, having said all this, there is one circumstance in which studies show a benefit, and that is in women with PCOS. So PCOS is really characterized by both insulin resistance and also disrupted female hormone levels. And so in this case, fasting can actually help bring your hormone levels back into balance and decrease symptoms of PCOS. Now, the studies in this area are limited and new, but what we're seeing so far is that there can be promise in this area. So I suspect that over the coming years, we're going to see a lot more work done into the role of fasting for PCOS specifically. But when you look at all of this together, does this mean that women shouldn't practice intermittent fasting? Well, not necessarily. What it does mean, though, is that women have to approach it in a gentle way. And you have to take your overall stress levels into consideration and really pay attention to what's happening in your body, particularly what's happening to your menstrual cycles. So I know that reviewing all of the science here today really just muddles the picture more, and I get that. But here's the thing. You are the expert on your body. And so if intermittent fasting intrigues you and you want to give it a try, I totally support that. I also totally support not wanting to give it a try. It's really up to you. The key, though, is that if you do choose to experiment with intermittent fasting, you have to be clear right from the start about what your goals are in terms of fasting, why you're wanting to do it. And then you have to approach your journey through intermittent fasting like a scientist. So you have to pay attention to how you feel, not just how you feel physically, but also how you feel mentally and emotionally, what your energy levels are like, and how your body is responding. And if you love it and if you feel great, then there's no harm in continuing. No matter what the studies say, your body will give you the message loud and clear if it's happy or if it's unhappy with intermittent fasting. So if you love it and you feel great, you don't have to worry that you're harming yourself. And if you don't feel great, you have options, right? You can choose to stop intermittent fasting, or you can look at the way that you're, in, you're fasting and tweak your protocol a little bit and experiment again. And then at the end of the day, if it turns out that fasting is not for you, that's totally fine. The great thing about experimenting is that you took some time to understand your body, and that in itself is a great win. All right, we'll leave it there for today. In next week's episode, we'll look at various protocols for intermittent fasting and how to introduce it into your life in a gentle way if it's something that you are interested in giving it a try. And I'll also show you how to evaluate if it's working well for you. All right. If you'd like to get a head start and learn about which intermittent fasting protocol might be the best for you, I've got a quiz for you. Just head on over to the show notes and I'll have a link for you there. Just click on the link and it'll take you through a few questions and it'll give you a suggestion on where to start for intermittent fasting. I suggest you don't give it a try until you listen to the next couple of episodes, but if you're curious and want to know more, that's a great place to go to start. 
I'd also love to know your thoughts about intermittent fasting and if you've experimented with it in the past. So head on over to social media, tag me on Instagram or Facebook. I'm at Ways of Health in both places, or send me an email at michelle at waysahealth.com. And if you've got any questions about intermittent fasting that you'd like me to address over the next couple of episodes, feel free to let me know that as well. I'd love to hear from you. All right, again, next week, we'll continue the conversation on intermittent fasting. Until then, thank you for listening and have a great week.